This comes from Romans 12, 9 through 21. Love should be shown without pretending. Hate evil and hold on to what is good. Love each other like the members of your family. Be the best at showing honor to each other. Don't hesitate to be enthusiastic. Be on fire in the spirit as you serve the Lord. Be happy in your hope and stand your ground when you're in trouble. And devote yourselves to prayer. Contribute to the needs of God's people and welcome strangers into your home. Bless people who harass you. Bless and don't curse them. Be happy with those who are happy and cry with those who are crying. Consider everyone as equal and don't think that you are better than anyone else. Instead, associate with people who have no status. Don't think that you're so smart. Don't pay back anyone for their evil actions and evil excuse me, evil actions and evil actions. But show respect for what everyone else believes is good. If possible, through the best of your ability, live at peace with all people. Don't try to get revenge for yourselves. My dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. It is written, revenge belongs to me. I will pay it back, says the Lord instead. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. By doing this, you will pile burning coals of fire upon his head. And don't be defeated by evil, but defeat evil with good. That's the word of the Lord. Thanks, Gary. Will you all pray with me? May the words from my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So have you all ever heard this poem, the Robert Frost poem that's kind of, not, not, the, not the paths, <laughs> the, the other one, uh, the, the one about walls, about building walls. Do you know this one? It's kind of complicated. It's a little cheeky. Um, it starts with, something there is that doesn't love a wall. And it's about two neighbors that meet kind of annually in their field to, to mend their dividing wall. The, the narrator is turning over in his head what exactly this wall is for anyways. You can just walk around it. There's not any more cows that are roaming that it is maintaining that boundary for. He even says like, my apples stay on my side and I don't eat its pine cones, so it's fine, you know? But the other neighbors, like, loves this wall and wants to keep this wall and, and says, and if your neighbor ever says this to you, like, do some self-examination. <laughs> he says, good fences make good neighbors. <laughs> Think about that for a second. Maybe that's, maybe though, like, charitably, this neighbor is saying good fences make good neighbors because he loves this regular meeting to mend this fence. Like he loves, maybe he's the sort of person that loves like clearly delineated boundaries and he likes to convene together to recognize them and to work together to articulate them and co-labor in this proximate life together. For one neighbor, this boundary is a, an artifact or a threat, an silly artificial line drawn in the sand and for the other, it's a helpful recognition of the truth that we are different, and that difference, too, can also be a gift. That a, quote, good fence can be a protection. I think of these dynamics, 
uh, the, the, the openness and the safety dynamics, as I think of the ways that Jesus says, I am the gate for the sheep. Again, remember, we're in this uh, kind of part two um, sequel sermon series leading up to, to Easter and our Lenten season. We, we learned about all these things that Jesus says, I am. I am the good shepherd. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the bread of life, etc. And now in this part two, we're, we're learning and we're examining and we're imagining together things that we are in light of who God is in Christ by the Spirit. So Jesus says, I am the gate for the sheep in the context of his good shepherd discourse. He shares with his friends his desire that he might gather the lost, the stolen, the hungry, the roaming sheep, and that they might enter into the fold and be welcomed and safe. In light of semi-recent political debates, it is kind of touchy stuff to talk about building walls and like a savior whose I am statement could be ripped out of context and he could be like a high security messiah, right? But I like to think about this visit that I took to this, this uh, monastery in Kentucky, Gethsemane Abbey, home of Thomas Merton. And I took this picture years ago when I was there. And it looks like a pretty straightforward gate, but if you zoom in, I think there's a zoomed in pic. You can see there's a cutout for the monastery cat. <laughs> um, and I love this picture. My, my, my whole time there, I spent about a week there in silence, a little less than a week in silence. And except for like little edge times when you could talk with monks and they would kind of spill the tea about what Thomas Merton was really like, you know? <laughs> um, but mostly silent. But the, this, whole, this beautiful, like out in the middle of the country in, in uh, Kentucky, um, almost like a fortress with all of these walls and all of these delineated boundaries, and not a single one of those gates was ever locked. Um, and then there were also these little carve-outs for... Uh, to, to make easy a way for uh, the cat that was on the grounds that presumably took care of the abbey mice as well, right? Like, think of, think of a gate this way as like a suggestive fence, a, a, uh, in a way like, um, and there were, there were definitely like signs, like monks only, like, chill out visitors, enthusiastic visitors. But had those doors be locked, I think it would, it would have been more incentive to transgress. Like it was enough to have a boundary there. It was enough to have a gate to make this place a special place, but also a place that was permeable and that you could move in and out of and was welcoming into. I wonder if at its core, Jesus is saying, much like the neighbors in Frost Palm are, are they're like in their own ways attempting to articulate. Jesus is saying, when he says, I am the gate, he's saying, you are welcomed and you are safe. In light of who Jesus is, the gate for the sheep, welcoming us in and creating a community of safety and care, we are fundamentally welcomed by Christ and given a ministry of hospitality. That's the we are. That's the cash out of this. That's where the rubber hits the road. Maybe I need to step back for a minute and do some work defining the word hospitality. Every few years, there's a new mental image that this conjures. When I started ministry just like 10 years ago, you had to tell people that this doesn't mean you have to be like Martha Stewart. And that analogy has like aged like milk and no one cares to be like Martha Stewart. 
that it's kind of a straw man. Hospitality, rather, seems now maybe like something we pay someone else to do for us. Think of the hospitality industry of hotels and catering. Think of, think of the economics behind that, whole groups of people that work in hospitality but can't afford to live close to where they are being hospitable. The gold standard of hospitality is experienced often by mostly parents, but sometimes not parents, in families in their first trip to Disney. That's where you encounter a hospitable world that is clean and ever new and seemingly created just for your enjoyment. This is almost like weaponized hospitality, right? You, you also pay for it. Maybe more of a, maybe there are also barriers to us being hospitable, and maybe more of a barrier to most of our hospitable pursuits is that we just don't feel like we have enough. We don't have enough time, we don't have enough money, we don't have enough creativity to be as hospitable as the people that we see being hospitable on Instagram and whatever like algorithmically fed aesthetic that we feel like is hospitality, right? We're not hip enough, we're not gourmet enough, so why try? Our place doesn't have enough natural light or plants. We don't have the right seating, let's just eat out. But what if boiling down our identities as fundamentally welcomed by and secure in Christ? What if, what if we start there and what if we work out from there, like we work backwards from that identity? And I think Paul's letter to the church in Rome kind of helps us here. Beginning, the beginning of Romans 12 has this, has this logic, this therefore logic. Our, our passage last week also had a therefore. Therefore, in light of God's mercy, in light of who God is, how God is, what God has done by the Spirit in Christ, he says, become a new paradigm together. All this is plural, y'all. Y'all do this. And he says this is bodily stuff. Remember, living sacrifices, bodily stuff, our physical bodies, but also our, our corporate body together. And then he goes in our passage today that Gary read, and he gives us all these things to do so that we can be. I don't think this is a list of requirements that make you feel bad if you don't measure up or some sort of Christian to-do list that means you're out if you don't do all of those things. I think instead these are just marks of a community that is growing in their identity in Christ. This is true for Rome. This is true for Oak. It strikes me that this sort of hospitable community is both profoundly simple and very substantial. Profoundly simple and really substantial. By that I mean so often church people try to create the opposite kind of culture. Maybe you've been a part of this. One where like coming into the church is really complicated. We've all been in those sorts of environments where to, to be a member of a community, you have to jump through a ton of hoops and sign contracts and attend classes and get the nuclear codes and sign NDAs and all those things. But what if hospitable Christian community isn't that complex? It's that deep, but it's not that complex. What if it's just open for all who desire it? Because Christ is in our midst. Because Christ is doing the, the drawing and the welcoming and the binding together in our shared life together. 
What if, because this is like a, like a non-anxious fellowship around Jesus, what if the door doesn't lock behind you and while there are some like ambiguous and fluid parts of this, it means that a beautiful fellowship can only exist without coercion or, or with consent. Like we, we, if we want to be together, we can be together in Christ. What if because Jesus is at the center, there's a really short path to the center? You don't have to like, get through these shells to get to Jesus. Jesus is just right there attending to us, ready for us. Think of all the stories in the Gospels of people's unfettered access to Jesus. The woman breaking her precious container of lotion at his feet. The children coming to them and the disciples being like, chill Jesus, and he says, let the kids come to me. The people grasping at him in the, in the crowd, he turns and says, who, who touched me of all these people? And, and Jesus identified it. Or like St. Thomas, believing Thomas, <laughs> touching Jesus' resurrected wounds. The other way we often build Christian communities is, is not just we make them overly complex, but, but maybe they're, they're kind of vacuous when you get there. Like, like I think of like church growth strategies disguised as evangelism. Um, I think this happens like, we'll assume good motives with like enthusiastic people, people who desire to share the good news of Jesus's like outrageous grace and welcome with all who, are, who will hear. But once they get people in the door, the plan next is also to just tell people about that. And like when you talk to these sorts of church planners, it's, it's like one of these conversations, right? <laughs> If you know, you know. The problem here is that there is so much focus on, you can take that down, thank you. <laughs> I know, if there, and we will also stay together as a church, divided on whether it is pronounced gif or jif, right? Um, <laughs> the problem here is that so, there's so much focus on Jesus the gate, but there's not a whole lot of attention paid to Jesus the shepherd. Jesus, the shepherd who personally mends and tends to his sheep. I like to think that Jesus, the shepherd, like introduces his sheep to each other and says, oh, like you should be friends. You didn't know each other. That Jesus creates a, a sheep fold that is a place of safety and care and growth and flourishing. It's very possible than to create simple and substantial Christian community. I like to think that this is like lo-fi, but very dynamic. And I, it's possible because I've, I've seen it here with y'all. Paul describes it. Verse 9 says, Love should be shown without pretending. Hate evil. Hold on to what is good. Love each other like members of your family. Be the best at showing honor to each other. Don't hesitate to be enthusiastic. Be on fire in the spirit as you serve the Lord. Be happy in your hope. Stand your ground when you're in trouble and devote yourselves in prayer. Contribute to the needs of God's people and welcome strangers into your home. Bless people who harass you. Bless and don't curse them. Be happy with those who are happy. Cry with those who are crying. Consider everyone equal and don't think you're better than anyone else. Instead, associate with people who have no status. Don't think that you're so smart. 
Don't pay back anyone their evil actions with evil actions, but show respect for what everyone else believes is good. You see, you see all these things that are happening in this dynamic, lo-fi Christian community with real people in a real place and a real Jesus, right, in their myths. This is describing love that becomes a new second nature by practice. Like anything. You didn't know how to speak until you practiced speaking. You didn't know how to play guitar until you practiced playing guitar. So you don't know how to love like your second na- nature, love without pretending, until you practice loving other people, not in a laboratory environment, but in Christian community. It says grasp on to what is good. Have familial love which honors. I, I, I love that Toph welcomed us this morning as Oak family, this like chosen second new family that you've come into just because you're here today. Paul talks about that we can be enthusiastic and happy in hope, that we can be steady in trouble, that we can be devoted to each other in prayer, that, that the Spirit binds us together so that even if we're not particularly sad or happy at any given time, we can have our hearts joined with those who are mourning and joined with those who are rejoicing. Both of those things can happen in the same space at the same time. Our hearts are made big enough for that. So I think this is the opposite of a Christian pyramid scheme, right? This is a community of substance and it is a community that has its own integrity, that we are by our becoming, and that we bear witness to having been welcomed by Jesus by making room for others. This is a logic of abundance and love and goodness and honor and hope. Paul says, give, welcome, bless. All of these, all of these like verbs in a row. He says, mirror others in the spirit by being with them, being a non-anxious presence. Trust that the resurrected Jesus is here and hears you. Paul lays out a, a vision for a radically egalitarian community. He says, no one's better than anyone here. Don't think you're so smart. <laughs> and it makes me think of these things you've probably seen as sign-offs on my email, and I, and I actually mean them, and I've actually been formed by them even as I've signed them off, that we are less without you and that nobody belongs more here than the next person who walks through the door. Like, we are growing into those things. Uh, as I was thinking about our community growing in these things, as the early and first Christian community that Paul is writing to in Rome I was also thinking of of some of the other early Christian communities and and the way a historian named Alan Kreider describes the the patient ferment of the early church is what he calls it. He says the, the first Christians, their focus was not necessarily on saving people or recruiting them, but it was just on living faithfully in the belief that when people's lives are rehabituated, like made new, like we get new habits together in the way of Jesus, others will want to join them. Uh, so that, that was their mode of hospitality. It was opening their doors and saying, let's be family. Paul continues and says, if possible, to the best of your ability, live at peace with all people. 
there, there's a little recognition there that this is going to be hard. And like in keeping your doors unlocked, you might be inviting unpeace. He <laughs> says, don't try to get revenge for yourselves, dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. It is written, revenge belongs to me. I will repay it back, says the Lord. Instead, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. By doing this, you will pile burning coals. And he's quoting scripture here. He says, don't be defeated by evil, but instead defeat evil with good. He says, be peaceable, able for peace. Non-reactive people who are being knit back together into wholeness. We are able to have and make peace. Again, this is part of our practice. And whatever boundaries need to be preserved, they can be mended and upheld together, like those two neighbors at the fence. Side note on God's wrath. This is the second week in a row we've had like a sneaky God's wrath snuck in there. I, I think here he's saying something along the lines of leave room, don't be the judge, jury, and executioner here. God will take care of it. God has taken care of it. Instead, don't be animated by grievance or fear, but feed, serve your enemy. Quote, unquote, defeat them by loving them. And oftentimes your enemy list will get a lot shorter in the process, right? There's a humility about that, and there's also a trust in God's timing, that there's, there's more time involved in this, that, that, that this isn't decided and this isn't over, that people can change that I might even need to change in a situation. I think that's a little bit of what Paul's doing there. All of these things are things that we're doing together. Some of us are pretty good at them, actually. Some of us, not so much. And we're not naming names right now. But so many of us get to be recipients of this sort of rich communal love, even as we're not always the ones who feel like we have what we need to offer to others. The beauty of living in community is that you don't have to have it all, all the time. You don't have to have everything all the time. You can borrow, you can join, you can share, you can wait, you can fast, <laughs> you can feast. In some sense, I think the measure of a really deep and healthy Christian community it's not that there's never anything missing or that nothing ever goes wrong, but rather how the congregation, how us together as a family, respond with thanksgiving and generosity and creativity when something isn't there, something's lacking, something, someone has a need, or something goes wrong. Like, that's the game right there. That's not, that's not like a glitch that is a feature of Christian community. In some ways, this is... This is like the logic of potlucks. I, I hope you'll, you'll like experiment with us today down there. Like, there's a feast every week that we bring ourselves to and our gifts. Maybe at first you come to the potluck as a guest. Maybe you came to the potluck first as like a kid, however you want to define that, and don't have much to offer on the supply side of things, right? Maybe... You come as one right now without time or money or expertise or equipment to try to feed others, but you just came and you were fed. But then you, over time, you come to the table long enough and you start to realize that God 
provides through people like me and you, who don't feel like we have much to give. You just bring what you have. You trust it'll be enough. And then you put all of what we have together, and it's not just going to be enough, but it's going to be beautiful, and it's going to be nourishing, and it's simple, and it's substantial. This means that week over week and season over season, no single person or even a small group of people are responsible to make this meal work. We all own it in a way. It doesn't belong to any of us. Maybe it, maybe it belongs to Jesus. I think this happens in implicit and unspoken ways, but also sometimes in like strategic and really explicit ways when things are good and plentiful, this sort of ministry of hospitality and service seems like it's automatic, like it's just on rails and it's just show up and there's food every week. But sometimes things are scarce. Sometimes they're imbalanced. Sometimes you have to trust that there will be enough or there could be enough. Sometimes the work is only falling to a few rather than the many. And there actually may be some time for some resets to be made, some guidance to be offered, some help to be asked for. And then after you've been at this table for a while, maybe you feel all the more, not only that you belong there, but that you can be a host and not just a guest, that there is more than enough and that you have something to offer. You can bring something to the party. This could be your unconfident cooking skills. <laughs> this could be something prepackaged. This could be your labor to help set up and tear down and sweep. This could be a financial gift so that we have plates and forks and napkins. This could be your welcoming presence that is aware and attentive to others and says, who is sitting alone? Now they aren't. All of this matters and nothing is wasted. Christine Pohl, who's like the scholar on hospitality, uh, like boils this down so beautifully. She says, the practice of hospitality reflects a willingness on the part of the community of people to be open to others and to their insights, needs, and contributions. Hospitable communities recognize that they are incomplete without other folks, but also that they have a treasure to share with them, simple and substantial. Hospitality is at the heart of Christian life, drawing from God's grace and reflecting God's graciousness. In hospitality, we respond to the welcome that God has offered and replicate that welcome in the world. This will be really important to us in this coming season where we're setting some new tables. This hospitality has to be at the heart of our community because Jesus is at the heart of our community, welcoming and making safe. To return to Frost poem and adapt it, kind of remix some Robert Frost, <laughs> maybe instead a good gate makes good neighbors. Neighboring, after all, happens in proximity to others and often goes to the next level when we're willing to open our door and let others enter into our shared life. To, to contribute to it, to be served by it, and then to be free to leave. As we enter into new space in a slightly different place in the neighborhood, we'll spend plenty of time and attention and resources figuring out the best ways to open our doors to our neighbors. 
again, there's that graphic. Uh, this is how that's going to happen. We're going to leave well, we're going to enter well, and we're going to have fun doing it, right? There, there's a lot of hospitality happening right there. And this, we're, this means we need to figure out the best ways to open our doors to neighbors because Christ has opened the door to us and walks with us into this new and everlasting life. There's also a conviction behind this that inside that door, like capital D, door of Jesus, there is always a table, and there's more than enough. Inside the door, there's always a table, and there's more than enough. In a minute, we're going to come to Jesus' table. Pastor Meg will lead us there, and we're going to feed on Jesus in faith. We're going to ask and, and trust that we're being built up together in unity, and we're going to hope that we can offer out of our once empty and open hands what we've been given to others. Will you all pray with me? Jesus, we give you thanks. We give you thanks that you have welcomed us, that you have made us safe, that you feed us, that you care for us, and that you give us family. Uh, thanks for... Uh, these folks in this place and all the practice and all the um, failing and forgiving and celebrating and rejoicing that we get to do together. Thanks for your spirit that uh, works all of these connections and is working them even right now. And thanks for being with us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.